from Luke 19, from the triumphal entry. So if you'll open your Bibles to Luke 19. And we got the front half of the story as we began our worship service. But there's more to the scene than meets the eye. In the midst of all of the celebration and the pomp and circumstance and the palm fronds and the cheering crowds and the hosannas, we find out Jesus is weeping at his own coronation. The rest of the passage reads, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another." Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He's in Awana, a kid who's having trouble memorizing verses. We start him off with Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse in the Bible. And that's at the tomb of Lazarus. But here we see Jesus weeping at a time that doesn't seem like the right time to be weeping. There's this celebration, this procession, this joyful crowd brimming with anticipation, excitement. And we sing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee this morning. And we know, though, what's going to happen Remember, the crowd doesn't know. And some of the disciples have been told, and the Bible tells us, they refused to listen. They were so caught up in their expectations of who Jesus was and what he was going to do for them that they could not hear when he explained that the Son of Man would suffer and die. Even his closest disciples. So like we said last week, when you come to the text, you must guard your heart against taking your current knowledge and read it back into the text. You must endeavor to put yourself in the shoes of the original audience if you want to understand what's really going on here. If everyone is so excited that Jesus is king, why is he weeping? Isn't that what we want? For people to acknowledge Jesus is king? And here you have this crowd acknowledging Jesus is king? Then why the weeping? It's not tears of joy. I assure you that. You heard what Jesus said. He pronounced judgment over Jerusalem. All of Israel... Most, all that could come to the holy city for Passover. Millions of people packed into the holy city. God had commanded that 
they celebrate Passover to remind them of being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. The great thing God had done for them, choosing them as his special people, redeeming them out of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. And be careful. I know on our end, we start to see all of those things pointed to a greater spiritual reality. Delivered from slavery to sin. Redeemed out of the slave market of sin. Chosen by God, the elect, to be his special people, to even be called children of God. And eventually brought to the promised land. Heaven. Eternal life with God. But none of them are thinking that. It says that they were cheering because of all the miracles which they had seen. And they were expecting more miracles. Oh, Jesus would do another miracle. He'd lay down his own life and then take it back up. The greatest of all miracles. But they were expecting the kind of miracles that fulfilled all of their desires. They had expectations of Jesus. Finally, this is the guy who's going to make everything right. According to what they defined as right. And I would say every single heart there had different expectations of what Jesus should do for them. You and I have expectations of what Jesus should do for us. And when we become convinced that Jesus will agree with our estimation of what it is that we need, we cheer him on as our champion. It's like when a new president is elected or a new pastor is brought into a church and everyone is excited and cheers, assuming he's going to do everything they want him to do. Easy to be excited on Coronation Day. Remember, eight years ago, when President Obama was elected, his people who were excited were saying, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Hope and change. Obama embodied everything that they thought about themselves. And nobody could be that. It was almost messianic. And now there's others on the other side of the political spectrum thinking the same thing about the current president. Now everything's going to get fixed. Now everything's going to be better. Now I'm finally going to get my fair share. Now it's our turn. And these were Galileans who were cheering on Jesus from the north. And there's always been a north-south rivalry in Israel, right? 
the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, even though it's not a divided kingdom anymore, and even though we're not technically in a civil war anymore, we're kind of in a civil war culturally. The intellectual elites in the south, in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, and then your tradesmen in the north, the Galileans, the the fishermen. Right? What did they say about Jesus? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Lowly carpenter's son. Who's this guy? What school did he go to? What are his credentials? Who was his rabbi? Who did he study under? No different today. Where did you go to school? What, what degrees do you have? What letters after your name? What have you accomplished? What's your place in society? Why should we listen to you? All but one of the twelve were Galileans. The only one who was from the south was Judas. Interesting. And so they're excited, but they're not excited for the right reasons either. They're more excited because now it's our turn. The guy doing all the miracles, he's from Galilee. He's our guy. I mean, remember, even though Jesus taught his disciples what the Son of Man was going to suffer, they refused to hear Jesus. And the night of the Passover, which then became the the Lord's Supper, what were they arguing about? Who was going to be the greatest when Jesus inaugurated the kingdom? Who gets to sit on the left and the right? Everyone is excited for self-beneficial reason. They projected onto Jesus their dreams and desires and expectations. And I um, I want to tell you this morning, this is what we do. We ought to know better this side of the cross. I want you to see it in them so you can see it in yourself. And they're shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a Old Testament messianic prophetic statement. Hosanna in the highest messianic. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I underline peace in heaven because on our side of the cross, we think they're shouting the right things. I I tell you, they're shouting the right thing for the wrong reason. Peace, this shalom, this shalom idea to the Jew, this all is right with the world. Peace in heaven. Jesus is going to... Make all my dreams come true. He's going to fix all my problems. He's going to take away all my pains. He's, I'm finally going to get the respect. I'm finally going to get what's due me. This is the sentiment of the crowd. They're not thinking peace as in we need peace between us and a holy God. They weren't thinking of Jesus as Savior. If they needed a Savior, it was to save them from uncomfortable life circumstances. Not a Savior from their sins. 
So you have the Galileans in the north, and you have kind of the intellectual elite in the south, and the Samaritans in the middle, who nobody liked. Uh, this first service, I likened it maybe to Kern County, San Joaquin County, North, Northern Cal, Zach, my NorCal brother. And then you've got your coastal elite, Southern California, intellectuals. And then someone said, I guess, Oildale is Samaria. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Oildale. If you're from Oildale, I apologize. But I reminded them that Jesus came to the Samaritan woman at the well first and revealed himself as Messiah. So... The last will be first in the kingdom. Yeah, somebody shouted out Oildale. I love this. this, We're so comfortable with each other now. (laughs) You're giving me sermon illustrations in the middle of the sermon. And I wouldn't have known what town to pick because I'm not from around these parts, you know. I'm a Stocktonian, which you would think would be the Samaritans of the north. But every city picks another city to be the Samaritans. So for that, for us, that was the Mantecans. And if you're from Manteca, my apologies. Manstinka, we would say. Yeah. So all of this is going on. All of this is going on. Nobody really knows what's really going on except Jesus. Everybody's got their own set of expectations and all wrapped up in their own life, all wrapped up in their own agenda, totally oblivious to the fact that the whole point of the Passover was to point people to their need for a Savior oblivious to the fact that the Lamb of God was in their presence, who was there to take away the sins of the world, they saw a miracle-working genie in a bottle. And we're often guilty of the same. And we, we should know better. We have more light. We have more truth. The mysteries of the gospel have been revealed to us. Jesus welcomed the crowd's adulation, though. He doesn't rebuke them for saying, he doesn't say, you are cheering me for the wrong reasons. Because it is right that he should receive praise and adulation. He is the king. He is the Messiah. They were saying the right things for the wrong reasons. You could come to church on Sunday and sing the right things for the wrong reasons. It happens. It happens to me. And God is kind and, and He usually lets me know in the middle of the song. Where is your mind? Think about what you're singing about. Or you're hearing a sermon and instead of applying it to your own heart, you're thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. They need this. 
So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. And they said this for two reasons. One, this whole scene of the conquering king entering the city on a donkey with the palm branches and the coats, this is, this is the way a conquering king would come back after victory, military victory. Okay, the, the Pharisees had a good thing going between Rome and Herod. They were rich. They had position of authority. They pretty much ran all the synagogues. This is going to cause trouble, these crowds, treating Jesus as a king. If, if word gets back to Herod, Herod's crazy. You know he's crazy. And Caesar's crazy too. So that's one reason. But it may also be that these messianic titles, we know the Pharisees did not see Jesus as Messiah. How could he be Messiah? He eats with sinners. He defiles himself. He heals, he works on the Sabbath. And if he really was Messiah, he would come and hang out with us holy people. And instead he contended against the Pharisees. So, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're using messianic titles. So, it's one or the other or it's both. I see it as a, as a both and. They're, they're, they're concerned about blasphemy, but they're also concerned that this is going to get all of them in trouble. And they're going to lose all of their position and their authority and their wealth. The house of cards is going to come down. There were those, the zealots, who wanted to overthrow Rome, but there were plenty that were like, hey, Rome lets us do what we want to do, and I got a good thing going here. Let's not, you know, rock the boat. So Jesus is acknowledging that the praise and the titles were correct, but when we see him weep over Jerusalem, that tells us that he knows their hearts are not in the right place. It's misdirected praise. So when he approached Jerusalem, you know, a couple million people or more crammed into the holy city and the surrounding parts of the city for Passover, all kinds of noise and anticipation... This was probably a much different Passover than years past because Jesus, this famous one, the miracle worker, is there. I kind of think about annual events that we have that are exciting. Maybe if you're a sports fan. I'm a huge golf fan. Today's a big day for me, the Masters. And like all my favorite players are contending. And so I always love this tournament every year. But this year, you know, this is electric for those of you who were Patriots fans. Or who was the other team? See, we don't even know anymore. The team that blew the lead. Uh, Falcons. 
hey, I love watching the Super Bowl, but this year, I think the excitement must have been palpable in the holy city. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to gather an army? I mean, think, all the people are there. That would be the time to gather the army, to assert your authority, to do some kind of amazing sign or miracle. Oh, and he did, didn't he? Not the kind they were expecting. And he weeps over the city. And he says, if you had known in this day, even even you, why the even you? Even you, you should know these things. You have the scriptures. It's Passover. The Passover was not to focus so much on the earthly effects of the Passover, coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land. It was to point to spiritual things. How do we know this? Because they weren't instructed at the Passover to um, reenact the parting of the Red Sea or the manna in the wilderness or entering the promised land. The whole focus of the Passover celebration was on the slaughtering of the lamb, the spotless lamb, the innocent lamb. It was to point them all the way back to the fall and that Adam and Eve needed coverings, to point them back to Father Abraham on Mount Moriah, sacrificing his son and God providing a substitute, a ram. Josephus records, the Jewish historian, that 256,500 lambs were slaughtered. We're not sure exactly what year that was, but a quarter million lambs in in, in a period of 24 hours, because it all had to be done at Thursday night. That was the focus. And to remember how they had to take the lamb's blood and paint it on the doorposts. So when the angel of death came, the angel that brought judgment would pass over the house of those who by faith. It's kind of ridiculous to be like, so you want me to kill a lamb and paint blood on the doorpost and somehow that's going to protect us. By faith. So you want me to believe in a dead Jew hanging on a Roman cross? By faith, yes, the blood of the Lamb will cover your sins and the angel of death will pass over. And he's weeping over the city because they didn't know the things which make for peace. Real peace. Not this temporary earthly peace everybody is searching for. That uh, all is right with the world. Folks, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all is right with the world. Already, but not yet. In the eternal sense, all is right with the world for you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. All is right 
between you and God. If God is for you, who can be against you? And you're still living in a fallen world? Not yet. We get heaven in heaven, not heaven on earth. We get a taste of heaven down here. But this isn't what it's all about. And so the crowd was expecting a King Jesus who would make heaven on earth. Conquer our political enemies. Conquer our emotional enemies. Conquer our physical maladies. He had the power to do all this, but Jesus performed all of those miracles so they would know this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the one with the power and authority to forgive sins and redeem the world. Paradise lost would now be paradise found. But first, the most important thing that needed to be done was to save us from our sins. If we get all of the temporary blessings, but we're not saved from our sins, what's the point? We're like those on the beautiful Titanic. The ship is going down. But the champagne and caviar is great. Right? What, what is the point? And so many people around us and among us and sometimes ourselves are living life exactly that way. We think the good stuff is for here. Instead of the good stuff pointing us to a good God who has so much better waiting for us. So, we see Jesus' love and compassion as he heals the sick and casts out demons, feeds the 5,000. So we know God is merciful. He's compassionate. He's loving. But all those people he fed were hungry the next day. And all of those people that he healed got sick again. That's not who Jesus is supposed to be in our life. The guy who keeps us free from hunger and thirst and illness. He's the guy who gives us living water that will never thirst again. And the bread of life that nourishes eternally. He heals us from the disease of sin. And He frees us from the oppression of slavery to sin. And if you're looking for fame, Jesus says, in my kingdom, the last will be first. The most important thing is that we recognize our need for a Savior, that we repent. Jesus preached repentance. This was his message. So 
if the crowd was cheering because they knew they needed a Savior, and here He is, Jesus wouldn't have to weep over Jerusalem. Instead, He prophesies judgment. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came on Passover, and you didn't recognize your need for a Savior. And this would happen in A.D. 70. 37 years later, General Titus. On Passover, a horrible thought. The terrifying judgment of God. That when everybody had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, General Titus would surround the holy city, lay siege to it, and eventually slaughter everyone inside, set up a huge bonfire around the temple, melt all the gold out of the temple, take the gold, and then dismantle the temple stone by stone by stone. A temple that took Herod decades to build. And when Jesus said, the whole temple was coming down. They, they scoffed at him. There's no way that would happen. And he meant it literally, but he also meant it spiritually that the, this temple was coming down, but he would build it back up in three days. They said, well, how, how could, first of all, how could you tear down the temple? They just thought that building could never come down. And even if it could be torn down, how are you going to rebuild it in three days? So he was speaking literally and spiritually simultaneously. I want to take you back to a passage I read to you a couple Sundays ago. It's just shocking to me, but it really drives home the point here. Luke chapter 13 Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Apparently some Galileans had come down for Passover to worship at the temple. They were slaughtered at the temple. Their blood was mixed with the blood sacrifice. Maybe the worst, most horrific way a, a Jew could die. Be slaughtered while you're, while you're worshiping God. And so the human mind has to reconcile this somehow. How could God allow this to happen to these people who came all the way down from Galilee, which demonstrates their godliness and their devotion to God, allow them to be slaughtered, and then have their blood mixed with the sacrifice at the mercy seat? And so the only explanation in their minds is that these people were actually truly wicked. And they must have been very wicked sinners if God would allow this to happen to them. And it would be similar to us thinking those Egyptian Christians who were slaughtered 
while worshiping on Palm Sunday must have been very wicked people. They looked like they were devout Christians, but look what God did to them. It's really bad theology. A theology that says God only ordains suffering for the wicked. And life is a bed of roses for the righteous. And the righteous one comes and suffers like no other human being has ever suffered. And the New Testament teaches us that in and through our suffering, we are made into the image of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, what? Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this phase? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he changes that meaning of perish from temporary, temporal death to eternal death. I don't think he's necessarily saying that these Galileans were lost forever. He's drawing a comparison and he's saying, look, those Galileans never thought in a million years this is what would happen to them when they went to make sacrifice. And in the same way, if you're going to walk around thinking nothing terribly spiritually could ever happen to me, then you are going to be surprised as well. You will likewise perish. We must all come to grips with the fact that we need a Savior because we have not made Jesus Lord. We need a Savior because we have not made Jesus Lord. You hear people saying, I received Jesus as my Savior at this age, and then later I made him Lord. I, I contend I don't think he was your Savior until you made him your Lord. Because the whole reason we need a Savior is because we make ourselves Lord. You don't need a Savior because when you were little you stole a pack of gum from the five and dime. Or lied to your parents. You lied to your parents and you stole the gum because you're a sinner. And you thought you had a right to those things. You were your own Lord. Lots of folks in our country claim Jesus as Savior. But you talk about Lord, and you see the way they live their lives, and the careless way they handle the Word of God, and you wonder. When Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And he says, away from me, I never knew you. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I command? The moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ is the moment we finally recognize I have been trying to be Lord. That's what we're guilty of. Just like Adam and Eve. I don't need God to be Lord. I will be Lord. I will decide what's right and wrong. I will decide what the agenda should be. I will decide how my life should turn out. I will decide how to use my gifts and talents. I'm a self-made man. I am where I am because I've worked hard. 
I deserve things to go my way. I shouldn't have to sit in traffic like the little people. My children should turn out exactly the way I've pictured it in my head. We believe we're omnipotent. We know we're not, but we have this problem, this propensity to think we are Lord. Oh, we would never call ourselves that, but that is exactly why we are guilty as sinners. So when you receive Jesus, you receive him as Lord and Savior. And when you receive him as Lord, you're acknowledging, I've made myself Lord, and this needs to stop. There is only one Lord, and it's not me. Save me, Lord Jesus. So it goes Lord, and then Savior. And if people are like, well, Jesus is my Savior, I don't know about Lord, I would say, saved you from what? The whole thing you need to be saved from is making yourself Lord, and not Jesus Lord. So when you sing praises to Lord Jesus, search your heart, ask God to search your heart because the heart's deceptively wicked and we'll trick ourselves. Am I truly receiving Jesus as king and he can do with my life whatever he wants? Because my life is not my own and it was bought at a price. Or are you like the crowd who's saying, Yes, Jesus is Lord. Now finally, my agenda will be fulfilled. And then you're disappointed when life doesn't turn out the way you think it should. And so there's no joy-filled Christian life. Oh, there's joy when everything's going great. But where is the joy in the struggles and the trials? If Jesus says that it's exactly the struggles and the trials that will conform us into the image of Jesus, then we can have joy in the midst of trials. After Jesus weeps over the city, he goes into the temple and it says he began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. The whole religious system was corrupt. And if this was the high point of the, the culture, this was the big scene, the big event that embodied Israel as a culture, how could the culture allow this event, this sacred ceremony, turn into this corrupt circus with the money changers in the buying and the selling in the holy courts of the temple and bribing the priests to get a better lamb. And the priest saying, oh, your lamb's not good enough. But hey, we, we've got some over here we could sell. Oh, you have money from the north? 
oh, well, you're going to have to convert that money. And then the money changers extorting people. And the poor who couldn't afford a lamb would bring, they'd have to, to sacrifice two birds, right? And the people selling the birds. We brought our own. No, those, those weren't blessed by a priest. The, the whole system corrupt. And how does a culture get to the place where nobody says, we got to clean this up? They're all just running with it. And, and, and before we shake our heads in disbelief, look at our own culture. You keep waiting for the culture to say, okay, that's it. We've crossed the line. We've gone too far. I, I don't know where too far is anymore. And it would be very easy for us to say, well, I'm not like the culture because I'm ten steps behind them. That's not the standard. I think this is evidence that the entire society had become corrupt. So I ask you this week to reflect on Holy Week and reflect on where you see your own heart like that of the crowd. Praising Jesus, but praising Him for the wrong things. Calling Him King and Lord, but really, I'm Lord and Jesus will empower my Lordship. We, we take that attitude on. Where are you demanding that Jesus do X, Y, or Z, and then I will praise you? And some of the X, Y, and Zs may be wonderful, beautiful things. But we make no demands on Jesus. We don't understand kingship. We don't live in a monarchy. We elect politicians, and then when they don't give us what we want, we get rid of them and put a new one in. Don't like what the pastor preaches? Eight more churches. Right? Membership cards at eight churches in Tehachapi. That's... Preaching's getting a little too close to home. Time to move on. James, who we know as a half-brother of Jesus, remember the passage where Jesus' brothers try to bring him home because they're embarrassed? Becomes a true believer... And the leader of the Jerusalem Council. I think James understands what we're talking about here. I 
wonder how hard that was to go from he's my older brother to he's my God. Any younger brothers in the room? (laughs) But the Lord did this wonderful thing in his heart. James writes, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's what we're talking about. You, you call Jesus Lord and you ask things from him, but you ask with wrong motives to spend it on yourself. It's, it's not for the kingdom, it's for you. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? This is the way the world operates. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's not room for two lords on the throne. And we live in this culture now, the cult of self-absorption, self-absorbed, self-fulfillment, self-identifying, self, 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 self. And it will rub off on us if we're not careful. Everyone else is getting theirs, I got to get mine. James says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so submit, therefore, to God. Submit. Place yourself under his authority. Put yourself back in the proper place in your mind. You're already there, whether you know it or not. It's that it needs to be there in your mind. God is high and lifted up. We're nothing. But in our mind, we feel like we're on an equal plane with God, if not a little higher at times. And you know you're not supposed to say that, but if you search in your heart of hearts, we act that way. It happens so quickly. Resist the devil. This is the devil's plan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. One minute you're submitting to God. The next minute you think he should be submitting to you. One minute you're bowing the knee to heavenly wisdom. The next minute you're following worldly wisdom. This this double-mindedness that Paul describes in Romans 7. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and then He will exalt you. You'll be lifted up with Christ. For it is no longer I who lives, but Christ in me. Father, do this in our hearts today and this week. When we sing praises to you next Sunday, may it be authentic praise that we have a Lord and a Savior. Help us to repent and turn from asking and expecting things of Jesus for wrong motives to spend on our pleasures. May we yearn for the true and only lasting peace. Peace that passes all human understanding. Guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.